2: LCC, Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app.
0: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
2: You see, if Christians were just like everybody else in the way that we thought and lived and acted, then the world would have no problem with us. In fact, Jesus said the world would love you. Why? Because we would reinforce their values and what they stand for. We would be saying, you're right. This is the way to live this is the way to think. But in turning to Christ, you know what we did? In essence, we turned our backs on their system. We rejected it. We said, your values are wrong. And their reaction to this rejection of their evil is to attack us because they hate Christ and they hate his righteousness.
1: As a co-worker friend of mine often said, no good deed goes unpunished. He was joking, but there's something to that, isn't there? I'm glad you joined us today for Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues our series of lessons from Psalm 37 called Fret Not Over Evil Doers. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We live in a time of more persecution than ever of Christians. But all through history, the godly have been under attack by the ungodly and Christ followers by those who knowingly or unknowingly follow Satan. There's a reason for that. Listen now as Pastor Steve takes us back in time to see where the hostility began.
2: On the very night that Jesus was arrested, he told his disciples, he said that in him they would have peace, but in the world they would have tribulation. Earlier that evening he had told these same men, he said, peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in anticipation of the persecution that they could expect from unbelievers because of their faith in him and because of their testimony, For him, he wanted them to know when all the forces of hell came against them and all hell broke loose, he wanted them to know that his peace was available to them regardless of how difficult circumstances became. No matter how much persecution they faced or how vicious their enemies' attacks became, they could experience peace, the serenity and calmness of heart in the midst of it all. And the book of Acts testifies that this is exactly what happened? That was the experience of the apostles and the early believers. Starting in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, persecution does break out. It begins when Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish religious authorities. Why? Because they're teaching about Jesus. They're teaching about him. But instead of being intimidated by these religious leaders, Peter boldly proclaims Christ to them. In chapter 5 of the book of Acts, we read the persecution now spread to the rest of the apostles. All of them were thrown in jail by the ruling council of the Jewish religious leaders. They were flogged, which means they were whipped. It was painful. They were ordered not to speak in the name of Christ anymore. But instead of being fearful, instead of being discouraged and disheartened, the Bible says they left the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. In Acts chapter 7, we read about the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was stoned to death for his faith. But just before dying, the Bible says these wonderful words about Stephen. It says that he of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, that doesn't give you peace, nothing will. Now, from Acts chapter 8 onward, the story of the early church is the story of the advancement of the gospel, but wherever the gospel advanced, persecution occurred. It happened, it followed. Those who proclaimed Christ were persecuted, just as Jesus said it would be. And where there was persecution over the gospel, our Lord's peace was available too to those believers who needed it just as he said it would be. And Christ's peace is available to every and any Christian today. But here's the challenge we have. Although his peace is always available to us, it isn't always appropriated by his people. It isn't always taken. It isn't always applied to our lives. All of us can attest that there are many times that we find ourselves quite disturbed and troubled by our poor circumstances, worried fearful, fretting, filled with anxiety and, and fear over all kinds of difficulties. And so so often we're like Peter, who on the stormy sea of Galilee, when Jesus was walking on that sea, and he called Peter to come to him, Peter did walk on the sea, miraculously, for a little bit. But then he took his eyes off of the Lord. He looked at the, the stormy wind whipping up all those waves on that lake and he became frightened. He began to sink. And Jesus said to Peter, as he says to us today, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, sadly, at times we're just like Peter, frightened with only a little faith. He didn't say he had no faith. yet little faith and doubting God. And it's at those times we need to go back to the word of God for some instruction concerning why we don't need to worry or be frightened by anything, especially by the threats and the persecution of unbelievers. And one of those places where Scripture does give us specific instruction on this subject of not fretting is Psalm 37. That's the subject of our studies. It's been the subject of our studies for the past few weeks. It continues to be today. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 37. Now, as you already know, this psalm is directed to the believers in the days of King David, Jewish believers, in the context of Israel, who were fretting, meaning that they were angry, they were upset, they were irritated, because there were many evil people in their society who were quite prosperous, had an abundance of material wealth. And the reason they were upset is because this seems so contrary to the covenant, That God had made with Israel, which he promised to materially bless those who obeyed him, but not bless evildoers who disobeyed him. But not only were these people, these believers, angry, they also became envious, jealous, covetous of the prosperity of the wicked. They wanted what they had. Verse 1 tells us this, don't fret because of evildoers, do not be envious toward wrongdoers. And we know in verse 7, it was the prosperity of these evil people that they were covetous of. However, in addition to being angry and envious, these people were worried. Worried, why? Worried for their lives because they were being persecuted by these same prosperous unbelievers. We know this is the case because David, the author of the psalm, mentions the evil behavior of these wicked men towards The righteous, notice verse 7. He says, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Later in the psalm, we read that these wicked schemes were schemes by the unbelievers against the believers. If you look at verse 14, which we'll cover today, you see this, the wicked have drawn the sword, bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, when we started studying Psalm 37, David wrote this psalm in a form that you wouldn't see in English, but in the Hebrew language, it is an acrostic. The form is an acrostic, so that every other verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A few psalms are like this, notably Psalm 119. Now, why did David do this? Probably because of style, number one. Poetic style, but also as an aid to help his people memorize the psalm. But because David's thoughts follow the Hebrew structure, the Hebrew alphabet, rather than a logical and progressive flow of thinking, honestly, Psalm 37 is not an easy psalm to follow. Nor is it an easy psalm if you're teaching it to outline, because there's a great deal of repetition as David goes back and and forth, mixing thoughts throughout the psalm. However, as we move through the psalm, we can see that there does seem to be some development of David's thinking, so that there are some sections in which he emphasizes certain truths more than other sections. We've already spent a considerable amount of time looking at the first section of this psalm, in which David teaches us that the way to keep from fretting over evildoers, and this outline, by the way, this This part is not original with me. Many have seen this. He says, number one, you have to look ahead to the future. By looking ahead to the future, he means see that the success of the wicked is very brief. We've covered that extensively. He also says we need to look to God so that we make sure that our relationship with him is right. And David gives us a number of commands, rest in the Lord, delight in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord. But today as we continue, our study of Psalm 37, we have come to what, what seems to be a new section in David's thinking because instead of telling us that the way to stop fretting is to make sure that our own relationship with the Lord is good, he now emphasizes another truth to help us stop fretting over the success of others. And that truth is this, the work of these evildoers, by evildoers he means unbelievers who are persecutors. The work of these evildoers, he tells us, it's futile. Why is it futile? Because God will deal with them in judgment. See, instead of telling us now what we're supposed to do, there are no commands in this next section for us. He doesn't tell us what we need to do in terms of keeping from being angry or refraining from being envious of these evildoers. David now turns his attention, note this, to telling us not what we're supposed to do, but he tells us what God is going to do. What he's going to do with those who persecute his people. And what he is going to do with them, David says, is he's going to make sure that their efforts at persecuting believers come to an end. In other words, David wants his people to know that while evildoers may enjoy some success for a time now, they enjoy making money in persecuting believers, this won't always be the case. Because God is going to frustrate their plans to persecute his people so that they will not be allowed to continue to succeed. That day is coming when it's over. Now, folks, the reason that this section of Psalm 37 is so important for us is because it helps us to appropriate that peace that Jesus said would be available to us, especially as we face persecution. And the way he does this is by giving us God's instruction on how he is going to deal with unbelievers who harm his children, his people. See, what David does in these verses, he reminds us that we don't have to fret. We don't have to worry about persecution because our God is sovereign. Our God is in control of everything, even the most wicked of people. And while He may allow them to succeed in persecuting us for a time. The day is coming when he will step in and stop their persecution. Therefore, regardless of what the wicked plan to do to you, what they plan to do to me, we can trust the Lord because we know what he's going to do to them. And this passage tells us. So what we're about to see then today in this next section of Psalm 37, David's going to tell us four ways that God deals with the wicked who try to harm His people. Now remember, remember what his purpose is in telling us this. Once again, it's to help us to not fret over evildoers. And surprisingly, the first way that David says that God deals with evildoers is he laughs at them. He laughs at them. Verse 12. He writes, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees his day is coming. Now, David begins this section by telling us that the wicked plot against the righteous. That is to say that ungodly people actually scheme and plot and plan to attack those who love the Lord. In other words, their actions against believers are not spontaneous. They are well-thought-out plans, and their plans are not mild, and they're not inconsequential. Now, David describes the wicked as gnashing with his teeth. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that they're like vicious wild beasts who are planning to tear their victims apart with murderous intent. There's malice here, there's, there's hatred that these unbelievers have towards God's people and they intend to bring great harm, even death to the righteous. Now, I want to stop here for a few minutes to consider a most important question. And the question is this, why do people like this, whom David calls the wicked, why do they have such animosity against those he calls the righteous? Meaning believers, not people who always act righteously, but believers, us. Why is it that there is persecution? Why is, and it takes many different forms, but why is it that unbelievers are so opposed to the gospel, so opposed to Christians. It's really quite simple. It goes back to the early days of man's history when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, we read, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, said that concerning Satan. Between your seed and her seed, he, meaning Christ, he, one of the seed of the woman, he shall bruise you, On the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, as a result of the fall, we're told here that there is going to be, and there has been, an ongoing enmity that exists, a hostility between the seed of Satan, meaning all who are unbelievers. They may not even personally believe in Satan, but they are the seed of Satan, all unbelievers. And a hostility between unbelievers and the seed of the woman, meaning believers. This hostility first surfaced in the cold-blooded murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Why did Cain kill Abel? We're told all the way at the end of the New Testament, 1 John 3, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why. See, unrighteousness hates righteousness. That's why persecution against believers exists, why it existed in the early days of the church, why it exists today. Always been that way. Satanically inspired hatred drives unbelievers to gnash their teeth at believers in trying to bring harm to them because they can't stand anything that's righteous. Righteous values, righteous acts, righteous attitudes, righteous morality, righteous standards, on and on it goes. Jesus explained in John chapter 15, it'd be well worth it for you to look this up. He explained this hostility of unbelievers to his disciples as he prepared them for the persecution that they would experience once he returned to heaven. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, and the thought here in Greek is not if in the sense that they might or they might not. The thought here is since the world hates you, since the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Our Lord explained that the reason the world, and by world he, he means society in general, the world of unbelievers, the reason the world hates those who know him is because those who believe in Christ are not like the world anymore did you see that the lord says that he has chosen us out of the world in that he has called us to himself he has saved us from our sins he has transformed us so that while we were while we are still in the world we are not like the world anymore the things that we used to like the things that we used to practice the way we used to think that's gone We no longer do that anymore, do those things. We no longer think like that. We no longer practice those things. See, we used to be totally self-centered, have totally self-centered, self-promoting values and desires and standards and ambitions and goals, just like everybody else. But in saving us, the Lord did something. He not only gave us the Holy Spirit, he gave us a new nature, a divine nature. And this new nature has a completely different set Of standards, new desires, new values, new ambitions, new goals, new practices. While we still struggle with being self-centered, our deepest longing now is to honor the Lord, promote Jesus, promote his righteousness. And the world hates this. They despise it. And everything we now hold dear because why we are a rebuke to them and everything they hold dear. In fact, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. You see, if Christians were just like everybody else in the way that we thought and lived and acted, then the world would have no problem with us. In fact, Jesus said the world would love you. Why? Because we would reinforce their values and what they stand for. We would be saying, you're right. This is the way to live. This is the way to think. But in turning to Christ, you know what we did? In essence, we turned our backs on their system. We rejected it. We said, your values are wrong. Your lifestyle is wrong. I reject it. In reality, we have denounced their entire system, the system of sin and selfishness and self-promotion. And we've said that their, their whole way of life is wrong. Their orientation of life is wrong and evil, and that they need to turn to Christ like we have. And their reaction to this rejection of their evil is to do what? It's to attack us. To attack us because they hate Christ and they hate his righteousness. Men love darkness, Jesus said, rather than the light. In fact, Jesus said that the persecution that we experience is actually directed at him. Notice John 15, verses 20 and 21. Our Lord went on to say this. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. See, the reason we are persecuted is because Jesus isn't around physically for them to persecute him. That's what he's saying. Our Lord went back to heaven. He's in glory now, and there's nothing more they can do to him. They already crucified him. They already spit on him. They already slapped him. They already mocked him. There's nothing more they can do to him physically, so they take out their anger on him on us. Their anger is expressed in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's physical. Christians have been beat, even killed for their faith. In fact, for the last 2,000 years, many believers have been and are still being martyred by those who despise the gospel. But persecution also comes, not limited to physical violence. It also comes verbal and, verbal and mental assaults. It comes by not getting that promotion at work. It comes by the mocking and the lies and the slanders. Jesus said in Matthew five eleven, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It's not personal, because of him. Now, going back then to Psalm 37, it seems that the kind of persecution that the believers of David's day were facing were attacks of a violent nature. And I say that because verse 14 points that out. The wicked, they've drawn the sword, and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. So, this was a very serious situation, quite dangerous, because their lives were in danger. Therefore, in light of the gravity of this situation, it may strike us as odd, surprising, that David proceeds to tell us that God's reaction to all this is that he laughs he laughs, he says, at the, at the wicked for the plotting that they do against the righteous. Notice verse 13. The Lord laughs at him, meaning the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. Now, the question is, why does God laugh at the wicked? It certainly isn't because persecution is funny. There's nothing funny about that. violent attacks against God's people are no laughing matter. Notice the last phrase of verse 13, because it's here where David tells us why God laughs at the wicked. He says, for he sees his day is coming. God laughs because he knows that there's coming a day when he will judge these individuals for their sin. The day that David is talking about is the day of judgment. It's a day of reckoning when God will put a halt to all of this and deal justly with those who have harmed his children. The day is approaching, David says. It's coming, and so God laughs. But listen, God doesn't laugh at the judgment of the wicked because of judgment, because he thinks that judgment is, is a rather humorous thing. There is nothing humorous about judgment. It is actually the most solemn thing in the entire universe.
1: It's important to remember that God is not laughing at our circumstances. He feels great compassion for His suffering saints. But the foolishness of mere mortals afflicting those loved by the Almighty is so outrageous that God laughs. You see, He knows the outcome, and it will be much better for the humble than for the violent. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Stop in some Sunday if you're in town Pastor Steve would be happy to meet you The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater Call 727-441-1714 for more information Verse by Verse is a ministry of Lakeside And is made possible in part by gifts from listeners like you Visit our website versebyverseradio.org to find out more And please feel free to take advantage of our free audio downloads. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson inviting you to come back next time for Verse by Verse